I invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And I have some ambivalence this morning. I'm excited about this text and sad that it's the last text in Revelation. Uh, But the scripture clearly says we cannot add to it, and so we will stop where it stops. And uh, Revelation 22, uh, I I don't intend this to be the last sermon, actually. I I hope um, the first Sunday of uh, 2020 to just do a sermon to overview the book as a whole. What's the point, the message, and and how to apply it as as we look forward to a new year. And Lord willing, we'll be able to do that in 2020. This morning, we're looking at verses 17 through 21. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. Revelation 22. Beginning of verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessing once more. Lord Jesus, you have given us this book, along with all of Scripture, as your word to us, the way that you speak to us, and I pray that you give us ears to hear your voice, 
and that, Lord, hearing your voice, receiving your words, we would have communion and fellowship with you. So bless us now to that end. May your word have the intended effect upon our lives and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we've come to the last words in the last book in the Bible, the last words uh, that Jesus Christ has for his church, for the bride. Uh, the, the theme of these last words is, is fairly easy to discern. If you've been paying attention as we're reading through, you'll note the, uh, the word come uh, over and over. Come, the Spirit and the bride say come. Uh, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, it's the prayer of the saints. It's the promise of the, the, bride, the bridegroom. It's the promise of Christ. He is coming. I'm coming soon. Uh, and if you think about it, that's exactly how you'd want this letter to end. Uh, you'd want it to end just with that assurance. If you are a, uh, a betrothed young woman and your fiancé has gone to a far country, um, and you know that the day he comes back is the day you're going to get married, uh, there's nothing you long for more than this, uh, for his return. And, and every love letter that he sends to you, you would want to end this way, I'm coming soon. I promise you, I'm coming very soon. That's exactly what you want to hear at the close of the letter. And Jesus, as we said, is writing this letter to his church. Uh, it's, it's specifically addressed to the church. Uh, if you notice in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, John, about these things for the churches. Jesus means this letter for us, for, for us as the bride, and, and this is exactly what we would want to hear. Uh, Jesus is coming soon. He promises that he's, going, that he's coming again. He's gone to prepare a place, but surely he's coming again, so that we might be with him forever in the wedded bliss of our eternal home. This morning, we're going to look at these verses just carefully making our way through to hear what Jesus has to say to us. We're going to first see um, the prayer of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let, him who, let the one who hears say, come. Uh, there are different ways of understanding these words. The, uh, a very common interpretation is to read this as an evangelistic call, as though the spirit and the bride are speaking to the world and saying to the world, Come, come to Jesus. And I have to confess, that is how I've generally understood um, this verse. But one of the benefits of being a pastor is I get to study, and as I, uh, I get to learn things, and I was uh, convinced this week as I was studying that that is not the primary intent of, of verse 17, that these are uh, not primarily words uh, that the church is speaking to the world. These are words that the church, the spirit, and the bride are speaking to. To Jesus, it's a prayer for the return of Christ. And that makes sense if you just notice the immediate context. It's important when interpreting Scripture to look at the context. What does the context tell us? Well, we have twice in verse 7 and verse 12 the promise of Jesus, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 7, and then again in verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And here then in verse 17, you have the believing response of the church saying, come, come Lord Jesus. 
Uh, if you have the same conversation in verse 20, if you just look at the uh, verse 20 here in your text, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And what is the response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's what the church says in response to the promise of Jesus. It's what the bride says. When, she, when, when the fiancé, the loved one, says, I'm coming soon, the bride says, yes, let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. And so verse 17 is not primarily, at least, a, a message for the, from the church to the world, but from the church to the Savior, to Jesus. It's a response of eager anticipation. Yes, Jesus, please, come, come quickly. Now, uh, we're told that the Spirit and the bride pray this prayer. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, of course, prays, doesn't he? Prays for us, intercedes for us. Uh, the Spirit leads us, the church, in this prayer for the return of, of Jesus Christ. The Spirit has been given, if you can think of it uh, as... Um, a friend of the bridegroom who's been sent to help make things ready for the wedding and specifically to prepare the bride. Uh, the, the Spirit um, comes then to Jesus' betrothed people, to his church, and he's, he has the jealousy of the bridegroom. And so the Spirit is, uh, is uh, constantly reminding us, don't go running after other lovers. You belong to Jesus. You've been betrothed to him. Uh, the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ by faith. The Spirit keeps us in that fellowship with Jesus Christ as the Spirit takes the words of Christ, speaks them to our heart, uh, helps us to grow in our faith, to confess our sin, to be, uh, He washes us with the water of the Word. And the Spirit does this, you see, because the Spirit of Jesus longs for the things that Jesus longs for. And the Spirit, uh, the Spirit has sort of a spotlight ministry. Uh, what He does, the Spirit does not, shine, does not draw attention to Himself. He draws, throws the focus always on Jesus Christ. And so when the Spirit is praying, come Lord Jesus, you, you see the Spirit longs to see Jesus receive His joy. And, and the joy of Jesus is to receive His glorified perfected bride to himself. Remember, he prayed this when he went to the cross. Father, I desire that they might see my glory, that they might be with me where I am. Jesus has a longing to be with his bride, and the Spirit shares that longing. He wants Jesus in all of his glory as the victorious king to receive all the glory and praise that he deserves as the final reality of his redemption is revealed, a perfected, beautiful, glorious bride. And so the Spirit says, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Receive this, this bride for whom you died. Come receive all the glory and dominion and honor that is due your name as you finally and fully destroy the work of the devil and you take your beautiful, perfected bride to your eternal home. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the Spirit's prayer. And since the church, the bride, is a Spirit-filled bride, it's also the church's prayer. The Spirit and the bride say, come. This is the chief desire of the bride. It is on one hand a desire for 
everything that Jesus has promised to us, for, for everything to be made right. It's a prayer for that day to come when there will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying, no more death. The old order of things all passed away. Everything that was under the curse of God passes away. And now the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Everything is as it should be. Everything made new. And the children of God groan, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we groan along with creation. Longing to be set free from our bondage to decay. We want to enter into the glory of our new home, a new heaven and earth there in the presence of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Every day you and I experience what is mortal. We experience it in our own bodies. We experience it in uh, the bodies of loved ones. Uh, yesterday we had the, the, the joy of celebrating Christmas here with my family. Uh, unless God intervenes in a miraculous way, the last Christmas we'll spend with my dad here on earth. And, uh, and dad, you just see, is, is being, um, he's a picture of what is mortal. And yet within that, there's that, that spring of that flame of faith and, 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 uh, and the prayer of all those uh, who believe in Jesus Christ is that what is mortal might be swallowed up in life, swallowed up with immortality. And every, everyone who watches a loved one who, who knows the Lord pass away knows that they have passed from this life to wake up resurrected. To wake up in the, in, in the beauty of life. And so the church, we long for this. See? And so when we're saying, come Lord Jesus, we're praying, Lord Jesus, we want all that, all that you've promised to us. But that is not the primary thing we pray. Come Lord Jesus is not primarily a prayer for the new heaven and a new earth. It is primarily a prayer for Jesus. We want him. We want to see him and be with him. That's the primary long, longing of a spirit-filled church. Paul will, will write in, in the Philippians, he'll, he'll talk about how he senses he's about to depart. He says, I, I, I'm torn between the two. I, I sense I ought to stay here and, and be here with you. That would be for your benefit. Or the, the other thing is that I might depart and and be with Christ, which is better by far. And Paul thought of heaven, he thought of Jesus. And that's exactly how it should be with us. What would you, what would you think of a bride, a, a, a fiance, a, 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 a engaged young woman who was much more excited about the house her fiance was building than about the fiance? So she's showing you pictures and it's the house and the house and the house. And is, is Jeff in there somewhere? Is it, where, where's... Oh, yeah, yeah, but let me, have you seen the living room? Well, you think that's, that's just strange. That's odd. It's not as it ought to be. Well, that's the, precisely the case, you see, with those who long for heaven, but don't have a longing for the bridegroom, who want, um, right, all the 
the glories and beauties of the new heaven and the new earth, but Jesus is sort of an afterthought. The spirit-filled church wants Jesus. What, what we long for is Jesus. Paul says in Titus 2.13 that our, this is our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to see the glory of Jesus. And that's what we pray. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. You see, it's a prayer for Christ to come. Now, what about the last half of the verse, 17b, if you have your Bible open there? Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That sounds like an invitation to the world, the thirsty world around us. And and it's not inappropriate to apply to that. The Bible is full of wonderful invitations to thirsty people. But if we pay attention to the context, I think the meaning is, is, uh, becomes more clear, and I think it's more specifically intended. Let him who hears say, come. That uh, let him who hears echoes the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, where we, where we have the first blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. What would Jesus often say after he had uh, given a teaching? As you read it in the Gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, to hear is to understand the spiritual things being communicated and to receive those spiritual things in faith. This is true. This matters. Let him who hear then, you see, is just another way of referring to the bride. This defines the bride. The bride is not defined by uh, just um, the fact that you go to church or not. There are many people who go to church who, who don't hear the word of Christ. Jesus says many on the last day will say, Lord, Lord. But the, but the, but the church, the bride, hears Jesus speaking. And so Jesus is calling his true church to pray for his return. Let him who hears, let the one who understands what has been communicated in these pages, who understands the glory of Christ, who understands the conquest, the victory of King Jesus, who understands that this is how it is meant to be, that we will suffer, but we will triumph. Let the one who hears about this wonderful lion who is the lamb who has been slain, let those people say, come, Lord Jesus. Because this is, this is moving towards a glorious end. And we should, we should long for it and desire it. Let him who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Well, that could uh, seem like a reference to the world around us. Again, it is, it is not inappropriate to say this to the world. Are you thirsty today? Because you've, you've drank, you've drank all the, uh, all the, uh, out of all the wells of this world, you've, you've, you've drunk the water that the world provides and found that it just makes you thirstier? Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus. If you're here this morning and, and you sense you've never actually come to Christ with uh, confessing your sin and believing in Him, casting all of your hope for this life and the next upon Jesus... Uh, but you just sense you're empty inside. You're dry inside. 
There's no joy. There's no life inside. Jesus says to you this morning, come and drink. But he has a message here for his church as well. Right? He has a message for his church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let me ask you this morning, church. Aren't you thirsty? Are you satisfied with this? Nice house, decent job, couple kids, friends, pretty snow. Is this enough for you? If this is, if this is all that Jesus came to give you, would you say, um, yeah, that, that's, that's good, that's enough, I'm satisfied? No, if, if, if the Holy Spirit of God is within you, uh, there's, you resist that thought. If we've been saved, if, if this is all that it is, if we've been saved just for this, um, we're of all men most miserable. Who in the world is more thirsty than the church, you see? Those who've tasted the first, the first realities of the love and the grace and, and, and the person of Jesus Christ, that just makes us thirsty for more. Who is more thirsty for the, for the fiancé to come home? Who's more thirsty for that than the, than the, the betrothed? She, she wants him home more than anybody. Who's more thirsty for the return of Christ than, than the church? And so Jesus is, is, is inviting us to thirst and to taste, to drink of him. He's promising us, you see, to give us life-giving water to refresh us. Do you desire life? Then drink. You see, the church's confession, we, we taste the O Thou living bread and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead and thirst our souls on thee to fill. You see, Jesus knows that, um, that life, or let me say this, <clears throat> Jesus knows that the Christian life is not simply that someday in the distant past, you took a drink of Jesus. You, uh, you came to faith, confessed your sin, and, and that's, been, that, that's all you've needed. No, no. That is sufficient to bring you into communion with him. But when you know him, you see, you want to know him more. You want to be more like him. You want to drink and drink and drink. And that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to. Do you desire Christ? Then come and drink. Do you, uh, do you, um, well, don't, you, don't we need this every day to drink of Christ? Jesus invites you. You see, every time you fall into sin, come and drink. Every time your heart is broken by the brokenness of the world, come and drink. Every time you grieve failure and loss, Every time you're, you, you just sense this longing for more, for better, for what Christ has, has come to give you, Jesus says, drink, drink, drink of me. Take the water of life without price again and again. It's how we endure. And it's what we're going to do in heaven. We won't stop drinking in heaven. There's, remember the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God and, it, and, it, and that feeds the trees that, that, uh, that, that are along the river banks and that water produces this wonderful fruit every season and we get to eat of that fruit participating in the water of life and we'll do that forever. We will drink of Christ Jesus forever. That's heaven. But we get to do it now.
O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. We get more. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Come, you who are thirsty, come and drink of Jesus. Now, there's a principle here in verses 18, 19 that might seem surprising. It doesn't sound like the way we would normally end a love letter. Um, there's a, it might even sound shocking to us that Jesus would speak so strongly as he closes out his letter. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So two questions. We want to first ask, what is he saying? And then we want to ask, why is he saying it? First, what is he saying? Friends, Jesus is clearly, unambiguously highlighting the incredible, indispensable, non-negotiable principle of holy scripture. He's telling us that this book is his book. It's not ours. It's his. He's the author of it. And he means his church to preserve it, to keep it, to not tamper with it. And he threatens deadly things if we do tamper with it. We don't get to um, sort of mold the scripture more to our liking, either by adding things to it or subtracting things from it. And both of those things can easily and are often done. So uh, we don't get to add rules and principles that are not clearly there. Uh, if you look at the history of the church, you'll find in different uh, times um, uh, people would forbid others to marry. Paul speaks of uh, some cults that were doing that, forbidding people to marry. Others uh, in, at times have forbidden the use of alcohol. Um, or we, we're not allowed to require men to wear beards or women to wear blue denim jumpers as evidences of godliness. Okay, you don't get to do that. That if you're really spiritual, right, you'll do these few things we've added on. That's what the Pharisees did. And they exchanged the words of men for the... Uh, the for, um, the words of God for the words of men. Jesus was incensed. On the flip side, we're not allowed to subtract from the word. We're not allowed to remove or ignore teachings we don't like. It's one of the benefits of doing expository preaching where you simply have to go through the book and you've got to say what it says. It's Jesus' word. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a time when a member of the British royal family went to the rector, the pastor, the preacher, after the service, and she asked him, uh, tell me, is there really a hell? And the somewhat embarrassed pastor replied, well, your highness, the Bible says so. Jesus taught so. The confession of the church professes so. Well then, the woman replied, why in God's name don't you tell the people so? Why wouldn't a preacher, particularly if he's dependent upon royalty for his paycheck, why wouldn't he uh, want to speak about hell for those who um, have a nominal Christianity only? Well, it's, it's evident why he wouldn't want to. It could cost him his job. 
But see, um, we're not allowed to subtract things from the Word. It's always a temptation to quietly ignore the teachings of the Bible, particularly if it's going to cost us something, particularly if it's contrary to the contemporary, um, the spirit of the age. There are many professing Christians today who are simply choosing to ignore what the Bible has to say about sexual ethics. And this is heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, doesn't matter. People just decide that whatever the Bible says about those things are really, it's an old book, different times, doesn't mean what it seems to say. We don't have to be bound by scripture on those issues. Well, we need to hear the words of Jesus that if we tamper with his word, he will judge us. Jesus says that he will uh, take away, that God will take away your share in the tree of life and the holy city. I, I don't know how to, a scarier thing to be said, a more threatening thing to be said. He'll take away your share in the tree of life. Your share in the holy city means you don't get in. You're then on the outside with the sorcerers and the liars and the sexually immoral. Now, for some of you who are theologically inclined, you might be thinking, well, does that mean that Christians can lose their salvation? If you can lose your share in the tree of life in the holy city. Well, what it means is don't tamper with Jesus' word. Because if you do... You are really and truly endangering your eternal soul. That's what it means. He means what he says. We should tremble when we see people subtracting from the word of God or adding to the word of God. We need to, we need to warn them, don't do that. Don't go there. Do you not know what Jesus said? Now, why does he say this? He says it for two reasons. First of all, this is a covenant book. It's a covenant document. It's like a marriage contract, you see? And we don't get to mess with contracts. So imagine if you're married, that your spouse one day comes to you and says, uh, I thought you should know I've slightly modified our marriage vows. Uh, you know that part about uh, keeping myself only unto you as, as long as we both shall live? Well, yeah, I, I, uh, I decided to take th that part out. The rest is fine. Love, honor, and cherish. I'm fine with all of that. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's just that, that keeping myself only unto you. That's, that's the only part I'm taking out. I just wanted to tell you so that if I don't come home some nights, I didn't want you to think I was violating our marriage vows. And you would say, oh, sure, yeah, that's, uh, I totally understand. <laughs> no, you would not say that. You think, what in the world is this person thinking? He's, he is destroying the marriage. That's how you would respond. Well, friends, this is what people do to Jesus all the time. Uh, Jesus, um, I love you. Love the book. However, there's a few things in here I'm just not as comfortable with. Uh, these claims to personal holiness as necessary. 
seems, it just seems a little strong. Uh, the requirement to be a part of the church. I mean, people just don't think that way anymore. Um, I love you. I, I believe in you. I promise you I believe in you. Um, I just, there's just this one part of the document I'm not comfortable with, and, and uh, I just want to make sure you're okay with that. Well, friend, uh, he's not okay with that. It's his book. It's his document. It is, it is what, you see, binds us together as, as the lover and, and the bride. He's made a covenant document with us that he means for us to keep. Remember what he said? Blessed are those who keep the words that are written in this book. And those who don't keep the words that are written in this book are the people who are going to find themselves on the outside of the new heaven and the new earth. This is, this is not uncommon. We find the same thing in the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is sort of uh, summarizing the covenant that God made with, his, with Israel uh, in, in that day. So Moses says, Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God that I command to you. So, so friends, just understand why Jesus is saying this. This book matters to Christ. It matters profoundly to him because he loves his bride. And just as a spouse would, would re, re, react in outrage over a, a, a spouse who had decided to just change the contract and remove some of the clauses, Jesus says that he will respond in the same way. And we should not be surprised. And then let's, let's, let's just listen and hear our Lord on this. This is why throughout the New Testament, you hear the, the, the apostles saying, watch out for false teachers. They're either adding or subtracting from Scripture. And it'll cost people their soul. But secondly, Jesus says this because it's the way that we drink of Jesus. You see, friends, a love letter is not a dusty, dry combination of ink and paper. A love letter is a living, breathing expression of our lover's thoughts and desires. We hear our lovers speaking to us when they write. And that's exactly the same when it comes to Scripture. It's not a dusty collection of theological truths that we can categorize. It's a living, breathing expression of Jesus' thoughts and desires. And he wants us to hear and know these things. The writer of the Hebrews said that this word is living and it's active. It's not just God breathed, it's God breathing, Jesus speaking. And it's a vital part then of our communion with him. Jesus says in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in Christ and, and having the words of Christ abide in us are the, are the, the two sides of the same coin. Now, I know that for some of you, well, for all of us from time to time, it's as easy to believe and, and, and it can be difficult to experience. All of God's children at times will experience, uh, there will be times when this just seems dusty and dead and dry. You'll open it and you'll read it and it won't do anything to your heart. You'll barely maybe understand what it's saying. You might even find yourself offended by what it's saying. Uh, you won't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't inspire you in the least. Friends, that is, that's, 
That's, that's normal for a Christian. I want to encourage you, if you're there today, you're not alone. Every believer has times when the Bible feels dead to them. That's why it's so critically important to listen to what Jesus is saying right now. He's promising you that this is his book. These are his words. Can you trust, can I trust, that the Jesus who created you and me out of the dust of the ground, the Jesus who ordained every single one of our days, the Jesus who knows us better than we know ourselves, the Jesus who gave his life for us on the cross, who was brought back to, to, uh, to, to life so that we could be brought to life, the Jesus who now intercedes is at the right hand of God in heaven, ordaining all things. I mean, can we trust that that Jesus knows what we need? And that he's not wasting ink when he writes this book. That he's, he's actually given it to us for our teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. I think, I think one of the ways that, that people, um, that we get confused is that we, we come uh, to the Bible looking for inspiration when what Jesus has written it for is sanctification. It's not necessarily meant to give you sort of a, a jolt in the morning with your caffeine. It's meant to show you who God is and how he thinks and how he's loved and what he desires for you. And, and, and the stories all, that you read, even the things that are kind of confusing to you, it's, you just can trust. It's all to that end, to sanctify you, to wash you, to make you ready to meet him. This past week, I was reading an account of my grandfather's life. He was converted as a young man, probably 19 years old, in Chicago, 1905, a few years ago. There are approximately 3,000 now descendants from grandpa. Over 95% of them are still in the church. And I was reading this account. It just struck me again that what defined his life was the Bible. He read it every day, uh, morning and night. He read it every single meal that the family sat down together um, they opened the Bible. I, I have to say that was our practice too at home. Dad, um, we, you, breakfast was usually because um, we ate early and got out to the chores, so we didn't usually have breakfast together as a family. But every meal that we had together as a family, um, we read Scripture. It wasn't always inspiring. The begots got really long. But it was always effective to the purpose that God had given it. Jesus wants us to understand the importance of his word. It's non-negotiable. Let us be people of the book. Let's wrap up. Third, the promise. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Uh, he doesn't say surely for his benefit. He, he says it for ours, doesn't he? Because you see, friends, we might doubt it at times. The early church could doubt it. They had loved ones being dragged to the arenas and being mauled by lions. They had uh, people locked up in prison. They, they, they lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They lost their, their ability to, to provide for themselves. They went hungry. They went desolate. They were, they were hiding in caves. And they must have wondered, well, where is he? Where is he? Don't you think that, that the Christians throughout the ages who've suffered the most intense persecution have wondered, well, where is Jesus? If he's not going to come now when his church is being utterly decimated, when is he coming? What is he waiting for? 
And Jesus says specifically to that church, the, the, the tried church, the church that's tempted to doubt, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. He wants to inscribe that in the deepest part of your heart so that no matter what happens and no matter how confusing it might be that he's not already come, you just hear this reverberating a promise, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And Jesus always keeps his word. Always keeps his word. Christmas is a wonderful reminder of this. The, the prophets foretold the Messiah. It was wonderful news. And, and yet the years dragged on and the centuries dragged on. And, and where was he? As Israel is being brought into captivity and even when they come back, they're never what they were under the glory of Solomon. And, um, and there's, there's just division and there's decay and, and some people scoff. He's not coming and others just decide to in sort of a cynical way, yeah, we believe that, but we're going to just get on with life in this world. But the promise remained. The word never wavered. And in the fullness of time, on one beautiful night in the little town of Bethlehem, the word was fulfilled and the Messiah was born. And it's exactly the same for us today. Jesus has promised he's going to come again. And there are people who scoff. And there are many who, they sort of believe it as an idea, but in truth, they're just getting on with making life happen in the here and now. But he's coming again. He's coming again. And no matter how the, the, the devil is going to rage, and we're told he's going to rage, and no matter what trials we're going to face, and we're going to face trials, Nothing can prevent Jesus from returning. He is coming, surely. And every single day that passes is one day closer to his glorious return. And if you pay attention, you can almost hear the rumble of the chariots of heaven. He's on his way. So what do we do till then? Well, that's finally the provision. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. You see, friends, Jesus is coming soon, but his grace is already here. The grace is already here, present right now in all of its pardoning, sanctifying, preserving, sustaining power. We're not alone and we're not left to our own resources as we wait for the glorious appearing of our Savior. The king on the throne is pouring out his sovereign grace and favor on you every day. He's opened for you the treasury of heaven, the storehouse of God's favor and love and mercy and kindness, and it's sufficient for the journey. We live in grace. I love what Paul says in Romans 5 too. Through him, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We stand, we've gained access into a, a, an arena of grace and in that place of grace, we rejoice in the confidence of the glory of God. You realize that, that that's what it means to be a Christian. That's your identity. If you've come to Jesus by faith, you've come into an arena of grace. And it's grace sufficient all the way from justification to glorification. That the grace that justified you, right? Titus 3, 7, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If it's sufficient for God in heaven to say, but based on the work of Jesus Christ, innocent, forgiven, then that, that, 
grace is sufficient to sanctify you, to keep you from stumbling and falling away, and to present you without spot and great joy in his presence. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And that's enough. It's sufficient. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. But it's grace that's brought us safe thus far, and it's grace that will lead us home. Friends, we don't lack anything. And that's Jesus' final word in this book to you. Grace. Sufficient grace to bring you and me one day before his presence. Amen. Lord Jesus, what a Savior, what a Sovereign. Who are we that we should be the recipients of such wonderful pardon, such a wonderful salvation, where we are made the bride of Jesus Christ and promised to be in His presence forever. Oh God, I just pray that if there be any here this morning who are not yet in Christ by faith, your spirit would help them to see the beauty of this story, of this love, in a way that would, Lord, bring them to their knees and, and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Oh God in heaven, I pray that you would give us the joy of seeing this gospel bear fruit in this community and bear fruit in our homes as our children come to faith and bear fruit in our own lives as we, as we grow in faith as we come awake to the glory that you have prepared for us and learn to trust in the grace that you provide for us. Oh God in heaven, I pray that this would be the wind beneath our wings that, that would draw us through this life. This would be the rock on which we stand. And that we will not be moved because we stand on the word and we look to the Savior and we trust in his grace. Please, Jesus, hear us. As we pray, come, come Lord Jesus, and God's people said, amen. amen. Let's respond by singing number 691, It Is Well With My Soul.